0: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Human Behaviour Show, Um, coming live from you whilst I have COVID. Um, So bear with my more than usual raspy voice. Um, But yeah, the show must go on. And today's guest, this week's guest, we have Adrusha with me here today, who I met a while back over on Clubhouse. And she was someone with a lot of energy and a lot of spark, (laughs) <laughs> and doing some very interesting things. So, Drusha, welcome, welcome to the show. Um, so h- glad to have you here.
1: No, thank you so much for having me. Uh, and likewise, you did. You know, short Clubhouse was was a blip in time for all of us <laughs> who stuck home in the pandemic. But you hosted some amazing shows on there.
0: No, thanks for always being so celebratory and appreciative of me. I remember, I think the first message I got from you was, was very sweet and it was always supportive. So, I mean, I know you had so much energy and positivity and that really struck to me on Clubhouse as well. But I think the audience would love to know, Adr- Drusha, um, your background. Uh, so... For those who don't know, Adrusha has produced some amazing or been part of some amazing projects in the film and the TV industry as well. And she's an artist involved in Web3 and tech and NFTs. So, so, pretty broad. So, Adrusha, you'll do a better job than me. Why don't you tell everyone what you do and what your journey was like to get where you are today?
1: Sure. I was trying to figure out how to share. On um, I love this platform that you're using. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction. I officially, as of this week, actually, am Emmy-nominated our film The Survivor that I did with Braun Studios and HBO Max prior to the pandemic, which is this beautiful story directed by Barry Levinson about an Auschwitz survivor Um, who was a fighter at the Auschwitz camp and ended up um, escaping or surviving and moving to America later on. It's his story about his love story, both um, as a character with himself and with his experience and uh, his love with the love of his life. And it's just such a beautiful film on HBO Max right now. Um,
0: congrats. I mean I must say I, I saw the trailer actually uh, posted this morning and it, it looked absolutely phenomenal. So congrats for being nominated.
1: Yeah, I didn't do a great job of of that just now, but essentially he this guy was one of the prize fighters in the Auschwitz camp. It's a true story of man named Harry Haft and he ended up um he ended up surviving during his time at Auschwitz. He fell in love and they got separated and so he Auschwitz, the camp they used to make these fight- fighters fight each other for a sport and you'd have to fight to the death. So he had a lot of PTSD around fighting and he ended up continuing to fight when he came to America because he was hoping to, to reach a point in his fighting where he had enough notoriety that the love of his life could find him. Um, so it is... Just what a hero story and so proud of that movie and, and how well it's doing and to have supported it as an executive producer. And then after uh, the pandemic started, I actually launched right prior to the pandemic, about six months before three months, six months, February of that year, um, I launched my own company. And so now I am uh, creatively developing, producing, as well as executive producing our own content both in tv and film it's been two and a half years but we started in the pandemic so our first film and tv shows actually go to set starting in october now you asked me a question what was the question because i've gotten lost in my own thoughts. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah no 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 that's exactly answering my question i was asking um kind of just, just your background, like you've been saying, kind of how did you get to where you are today? And then we'll kind of touch, I know you've touched upon what you've been up to right now and producing some interesting projects, a TV and film. Um, but how did you get here?
1: Yeah, so my story is not a straight line. Um, I was a little girl who grew up loving storytelling. And the reason I love storytelling so much, I think, uh, it is my own self analysis was because I'm a first generation American. Um, so I grew up kind of straddled between two cultures. I'm South Asian, uh, and I'm an American and, you know, spent a lot of time traveling between those worlds, going back to India. I had cousins who were in Australia. I had a godfather who was in France. So uh, it was very important to my parents when I was young, even when they couldn't afford it as students, college students, to make sure we knew where we came from. So we would spend time um, on the opposite side of the world. And what you know, what I know about the opposite side of the world is that there's a lot of people who have far less than we do, and they're, they are living in, in very different ways than we do here in the States. And so um, I think as a child... I got to see the great gaps that we have between socioeconomic divides and uh, cultural divides globally up close and personal. And I, myself, as someone who is of two cultures, um, was trying to, as a very small child, understand that, right? And understand how that uh, related to my experience. And my father is such a lover of great stories um, and all the great English literature that he grew up with. He's kept every old book from when he was um, growing up in in boarding school and in school in India. He still has those books, right? And he would read to me every night. And so somewhere in these characters, I found uh, a way to understand all these different cultures And understand all these different experiences and understand how they could help people who haven't had those experiences live in a space of um, magic and belief and ideals that something other than their existence could be possible. And so that's why I think I early on invested in the arts and storytelling subconsciously without knowing is because I realized very early The power that media has, music, film and TV, stories, to execute change on a large scale at a resonance level, meaning affect the way a person feels and change the way that they could possibly view possibility and the world. And then I, like I said, my story's not linear. I got lost. Um, You know, there's pressures on kids growing up in American society, especially first gen kids to have a certain level of success, uh, to make sure that you are going into things that make you money. My parents have actually always been very supportive of my artistic dreams. But there was always this also duality conversation of, you know, make sure that you're on your studies, though, make sure that you've got your education, make sure all these things. So I ended up, going in, um, being a a very studious student but also being very into the arts and i broke my knee at 15 i had gone to a place where i decided i want to be a musical theater major um, i was fully immersed in acting and singing and dancing conservatory trained and i broke my knee during an audition and this is the first the first like pivot in my story My story is a story of someone who basically lost fear over several large pivots in her life. And the fear, what was was always holding me back from realizing my five-year-old dream, my five-year-old self and myself now do exactly what they were supposed to do. I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to be an artist. And I wanted to put art out into the world to help affect change for individuals who needed hope that's all i wanted to do i was very clear at five years old that's what i wanted to do but then life seeped in and fear seeped in the fear around making money the fear around having security the fear around can i do this as a brown girl growing up in america and so then i started making decisions like when i broke my knee at 15 um 15 was interesting because now I was told I wasn't going to be able to walk again without limping. And I was a really soft kid before then. And what I learned at 15 was that I could overcome anything. So here I was setting up to go to college for musical theater. I basically was told I couldn't walk again without limping. I had to go into eight hours of physical therapy a day. They had me running again by the end of the year. And I had to change my whole life plan. Did I have to change it? That's up for debate. But my 18-year-old self didn't feel confident going into college as a musical theater major with what I now viewed as as a disability. So I got offered a lot of money to go to business school. And I went to business school. And for five years, four years of business school, it was a five-year program, I was the best business student you could ever meet, see, find. I had decided when I got into business school that it was just like acting. If I could believe I could be this person, this like super business manifested. I didn't know that's what I was doing. It was a survival mechanism back then, but I was learning how to manifest my reality and learning how to believe in myself. So I got through business school, and essentially, this is when the next big pivot in my life happened. I ended up taking all my credit hours, my last quarter. um, Sorry, my last uh, for my last year in one quarter because I was. I woke up one day and I was like, "What am I doing? This is not what I want to do with my life. I need to go find out what I want to do with my life." So I took all my credit hours and I moved out to LA. And when I moved out to LA, I actually had. I had a manager who had recruited me for acting. I was still singing, but I was working at a strategy company for my day job. And um, I started pretending to be my own manager agent. I'd gotten myself on entourage, all these things. I'd been hacking the system. I'm I'm someone who needs to understand how things are built. So I'd gone and I'd worked in an agency on the Saturdays. I'd figured out how how, the, the talent side worked. I started posing as my own manager. I'd got myself on all these TV shows. And then one day I couldn't get out of bed and I thought I had depression um, because I had moved so quickly and I had never experienced lack of motivation in my entire life. Um, So I started looking for solutions. What was going on? What exactly was happening? And I ended up after a year and a half of a misdiagnosis of ADD. I was diagnosed at first with ADD um, by a doctor. I'd never been on pills before, was given an ADD diagnosis, but the Adderall wasn't working. I kept on hitting a limit and I was spinning out on it. And I was like, this can't be life. I'd always been super holistic growing up. I'm like, I can't like be on this forever. It's not working. So I kept searching for solutions and I ended up getting a brain mapping done out here in Los Angeles at the Drake Institute for what I thought was going to be a proper di- re of my ADD to help me get off the Adderall and deal with it naturally. When they did my brain scan, they found out that I had actually my entire life since I was, let's call it, they don't know exactly when, but sometime around five or six years old, had something called an auditory processing disorder. I had been living with a learning disability my entire life and no one had ever caught it. They asked me when you were in first grade and you you started first grade, did they ever say you were bad at phonetics? They had, they told me I was horrible at phonetics but I had tested so well in every other space that they thought it was because I was changing schools. And so retrospectively, when I look back at my life, right? This is the second reason that I think that the arts became so important to me because I actually needed a second way to communicate. Um, and we see when we look retrospectively back in my life, the existence of this auditory processing disorder throughout my uh, maturation or throughout my growing process. I actually retrospectively had had control issues as a kid. Like, I think I couldn't, I couldn't like go to bed without showering, <laughs> something like that. But they had been like, oh, she's just a kid. Like, this is a thing that she has. Then, when I was uh, a preteen, I had had a drop in my grades and they were like, oh, it's hormones. And then my parents had like taught me and started tutoring me at home. So, I had created this dialogue that I learned differently. I learned through music, I learned through arts, I learned through hands on learning. The truth is, I actually was missing things in my processing system when I was not hyper-focused. ADP or or, our auditory processing disorder is essentially damage to your working memory um, by the way, this is a long story, so you can interrupt me anytime and ask questions. Because I'm
0: enjoying, I'm captivated by this. We're like, going to go what through a, this whole journey. Like, what a journey! Keep on. I don't want to interrupt you until you're done. Uh,
1: yeah, Keep but going. sometimes, sometimes if you ask questions, it helps shape the story because it's me kind of. Just, yeah. So so tell me, tell me if there's anything. But the AD, the ADP, basically uh, auditory processing disorder. Did I do the APD? Anyway, the auditory processing disorders is damage to your working memory. I'm not a doctor, so sorry, guys, if I mess that up. Um, And essentially, I had somehow hit my head when I was a kid, which all kids hit their head a million times. Like, they they can't really pinpoint when it happened. And when I was not hyper-focused from that point onwards, I would actually miss consonants in words. What when people were talking. Now, I test in the upper three percentile IQ of a, uh, of a female of South Asian descent like in my demographic. So essentially the reason they did not catch it is because it was, although it was creating these micro traffic jams because I was not hearing, you would say spoon and I was only hearing poon or you would say fork and I was only hearing orc. My hearing was fine, but my processing was missing these micro con- these little consonants. But I was the exception to the rule where I was smart enough that I was able to basically scramble behind my own brain and figure out what, what someone was saying, right? This is where the, I learned from hands-on learning. I learned from music. These were ways that I was tricking my brain into being hyper-focused so that I could understand and pick up every word someone was saying, um, and it was wild. When they when I went in for my brain scan, and they told me this. They then put on a pair of headphones and they slowed down words. And I literally didn't hear consonants and words. It was insane. But no one had ever gone through that type of process. And there's nothing wrong with my hearing again. So every hearing test, everything's fine. This is literally the way your brain processes. So at, um, at that juncture, I took a year off of work. Uh, I flew my mom in. I, I was like, this is the diagnosis. They usually treat kids with auditory processing disorders if they're able to catch them as kids. They use um, bio and neurofeedback, which is essentially, uh, they put, they put um, electrodes on that part of your brain and then you control the computer, the, a computer screen with your thoughts, meaning you're using your brain as a muscle and you are you are strengthening that muscle like you would the weakest muscle in your in the in the gym. And they usually do these to kids when you have that neuroplasticity of the brain. So they didn't know as an adult like how long it would take me, whether I it w- what kind of reaction my brain would be. It's impossible for them to know because they haven't treated that many adults. And every adult, your neuroplasticity is different. So they was like they told me you have to quit your job. You have to come in here eight hours or six hours a day. Um, four hours of therapy, then we have to do an hour of de-stressing to unlearn the habits that you've learned to keep this hyper-focus. And then, of course, you have to go to therapy because we're changing the composition of your brain. And they said, this will probably take a year and a half. Um, But what was the other choice? To just live with a disability? So I had been on this rocket ship on my career um, in terms of I had had the top internship in college at Saatchi and Saatchi had gone and worked already full time there. I'd come out to work strategy here in LA. Yes. I was still doing the artist thing. Cause it was my passion, but I was kind of that every 20 something year old kid where you're like, not exactly sure if your decision still. So you're just like, okay, I'm going to do all the things and see what kind of floats to the top. And why this is significant is because when I made this decision to stop to go through this treatment, I had to jump off my own timeline of success because I had been a high, I had been a, a high achieving prototype of a a kid who was running at a goal and was winning, and I was lost in the tunnel of winning, meaning I had lost track of what I actually wanted to do in life. That's I so difficult.
0: Going, <laughs> like that's, that's mm-hmm. hard. That's hard. That's really hard.
1: But I think every kid goes through this, and it's important to share on this journey of how how I end up where I am now, because there's a lot of fear around this idea of letting go of a path that you've set for yourself. And society forces us to think like you need to have a plan. What's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? What's your three-year plan? All these things. And then when we have that plan. If you're a certain personality type, jumping off that plan starts to feel larger than life. But here I was forced to jump off whatever rat race I was running. I was forced to jump off the treadmill. I was forced to put my health first. And I was supposed to take, forced to take an actual pause and to get rid of all these ideas around by 20 something, I need to do this, by 20, because now I had to take a year off. So in order to, from a mental health standpoint, be okay with that, I needed to let go of all these timeline markers that I had. And so this is my second part of losing fear because I had fear around, you know, how far I could push myself. I think every kid has that in my knee injury kind of helped me with that and what I could succeed when people told me that it's not possible. Can I do it? Yes. Check. Now I have this fear around my timeline. By 20-something, if I'm not this, then I got to give up on that dream, right? And here, I have a portion of my life where I have to stop and I have to rebuild all my foundations of what those dreams are built on. Because also, when you have any sort of disability or or you have something like this that you don't know about, you're also making, from a psychological standpoint, my brain was making decisions based on it's wiring prior to me being cured of my auditory processing disorder. Um, and once I was cured, which it took six months, it was supposed to take a year and a half, my brain picked it up in six months, my foundation of how I made decisions had completely changed because I no longer had that deficiency. So I no longer felt like I needed to control things. I no longer felt like I needed to like create these like systems around myself. That was all actually... A byproduct of my auditory issue, um I no longer felt like I needed to be always be the leader, always be in control, always be this person who like knew exactly what she was doing. Those things dissipated the year after that. So this is the second kind of um, pivot that I had. So, um, and then I guess the third would come. Do you have any? Questions? So that's, that's an incredible, I
0: mean, journey so far. I'm still kind of quite riveting. I mean, you need a almost produce a a serial or a a movie on this um yeah the struggle seems real but you (laughs) seemed pretty resilient throughout which is which is incredible and i I can see um, a lot of your personality being morphed through this you know this diagnosis and then you know giving up tremendous success and working through that as well but then also the realization of pursuing this passion that you had that maybe wouldn't have come to the forefront if this hadn't happened so maybe there's there's this fate there as well but yeah i'm super excited to hear the third part of this so a
1: thank you for that and and B, like the the truth of the matter is when you're in these situations you're living them you don't realize how the puzzle comes together right so sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just having faith in the process and in the idea that like each of us are given an individual path and as long as we keep the mindset of positivity hope and possibility we will attract what is meant for us in it is when we go into these spirals of depth, despair any of these points I could have been like you know that's it there go my dreams there go my goals I'm gonna go into a space of depression or whatever that might be but I had this beautiful Gift of the knee break and overcoming it, where I realize that going into depression and darkness only leads to your own personal demise, and that when someone tells you nothing is something isn't possible, no in this case means yes. Right? You have to look at these no's and be like, no, this is this is an opportunity for me to prove other people wrong because anything is possible. I'm telling you this right now. Anything is possible. You are capable of so much more than you can possibly know. Um, And that's what this auditory processing disorder uh, and diagnosis and me going through the process of healing kind of taught me was like, wow, I didn't know all these things about my brain. And now I've completely changed the way my brain works and my outlook on life. As such. So my parents were very worried about me. They said, "Come back to Ohio." And so this is the walkabout portion of my career um, because when you are someone, I mean, I explained to you the the what happened and what the end result was. But that was a process of a couple years of me understanding that my my makeup of the way my brain worked had changed letting go fully of these ideals I had because I'd been with 25 kids full full scholarship, we'd all graduated together. They were all becoming the heads of their own companies or the um, product managers of major brands. They had kept going and I would have been ahead of all of them and now I'd fallen a year behind all of them. And because of this new set of tools, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So the walkabout was me going back to Ohio. I did strategy for a bar, restaurant, nightclub. Um I had been working with major brands, starting with sachi at Tylenol with with brands like Tylenol, Yoplay Yogurt, etc. Then continuing with my strategy work. I had been doing um strategy work for a bunch of telecoms. Now I was back in in um in Ohio, which is the home of all major brands. So I started doing some consulting work for a bunch of brands and a bunch of friends of mine were opening a bar, restaurant, nightclubs that come do the strategy for us. And I just started saying yes to things. And I was like, yes, that sounds great. Cause I did not know anymore how I was gonna get back to my dream or where my dream was going to land because I felt like I had been so widely changed. And so a walkabout is in Australian, Aborigines use the term walkabout. It's kind of this like this uh, tradition where they they go out into the wilderness to find themselves, and they kind of walk aimlessly. And God or the universe or the um, the ancient spirits say that they give to you the answers, right? And I probably butchered that, uh, but this is what I recall of the Aborigine story about walkabouts, right? But it's like this finding yourself thing. And so I said yes to everything in those next couple of years that I was capable of doing. And the one thing that happened, I was... I was doing strategy for the bar, restaurant, and nightclub. We opened three different venues. We did very well that first year. Um, I was learning entrepreneurship. I got cut out of a lot of the... (laughs) I didn't get a lot of profits from that time, even though that was not the original conversation. I worked for um, a company called Battery Creative. I did consulting work for them, for Gatorade, for Crest Toothpaste. Um, I had started a viral cooking show um youtube had just kind of become big and because we had the restaurants i was like trying to think of ways to put more butts in the seat and thought i could make this marketing tool so i started cooking with all the best chefs in town and i hosted and i edited and i produced this content together so it was really just to help with this other strategy work i was doing as a marketing tool and then people really gravitated towards this content i was creating at fox local um was, uh, was the the new syndicate Fox was like, Hey, so you're, you're a producer and you're a host and you, um, do all this content. Can you come do some for us? And, um, you know, I was like, yeah, that's what I am for sure. Look, I'm doing, I mean, I was doing these whole 30 minute segments. That I was helping with everything from the script writing to overseeing the editing to overseeing, um, you know the product placement and everything and so I said yes and they were like oh great so you can be our live on air talent for all our entertainment segments I'll never forget the first day they put me on the square they put a, a butt in my ear and they threw the camera to me and they were like and go and there was a large band behind me I think it was walk the moon and uh, I couldn't hear anything that the station was saying and I had no idea what I was doing but I just did it <laughs> And when I was done, he was like, oh, you did a great <laughs> job. You're going to do it for the rest of the summer and all our radio spots. And I was like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> um. So there was an element of just being scrappy and that belief that I had built of, of uh, over these last two instances of being able to overcome everything that I brought to the table at that point in my life. And it put me into the space of first producing these small segments and helping and being on air talent with Fox, doing it for this cooking show that I had created, then going and realizing something I was interested in, uh, learning from a friend of mine who owned a production company that was doing a documentary on Babe Ruth um, about the process around filmmaking uh, and just really getting curious. And so... By the end of that year, I knew without a doubt that I wanted to come back to L.A. and that I wanted to be in entertainment. And I knew that I loved the being the ideas person and coming up with the story and putting it together because it gave me creative control. Um, and so I started looking for opportunities and a friend of mine named Rick Shermer is actually his birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Rick. He had a company called partners hub. He came through Cincinnati because he was doing stuff with brands, but he was also doing stuff with film and television. He used to work at Disney and, um, he was doing campaigns for the grudge and the Bible series, which was Mark Burnett's big production, um, and a bunch of other, um, film and television companies, as well as brands like Walmart, et cetera. And so Rick saw everything I was doing, which was now content and strategy work. And and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to be the ideas person. And he said, I don't know what the... F that means, but whenever you're ready, come back out to LA and I'll give you a job. I don't know that Rick expected me to literally pack <laughs> my bags and come to LA right away, but I was there within three months. Like I was literally in, out, okay, you said there's a job for me, showed up in LA. And so I started back in LA at Partners Hub at this intersection of um, what they were then calling influencer marketing. They were essentially using consumer groups, targeted consumer groups that were uh, really concentrated like mommy bloggers or people who are invested in religion or horror, et cetera, and using them to push forward the conversation around either a brand or a film, or television project, et cetera, by incentivizing them with perks. And so there was a lot of um, creative ideation uh, which I was used to. I'd started in, in, um, strategy at Saatchi, coming up with the ideas for the campaigns, et cetera, the storylines, feeding them to the audience. And when Partners Hub essentially, um, when I, when I left Partners Hub, I had this idea I wanted to be a development producer, right? And so during this time at Partners Hub, I had, f- found out that like of all the producing and the producers that I'd met and the people I've been around and the people I've been talking to, this idea of coming up with the concept and creating the story or the world was a thing I was obsessed with. And so I wanted to be a development producer and with all the greenness, naivety and chutzpah that uh, a person of my journey had, (laughs) I just went in to anyone I knew well enough to ask for a job and said, I want to be a development producer. and um, although I had a great network out in LA, there were only a couple people I felt comfortable asking for a job. And so the first one was a guy named Ryan Johnson, who I'm st- uh, still friends with. Great guy who owned a company called Filmhouse New York, um, which was an indie, indie film film company back then. They had a deal with Ambie. Um, they did things like Whoopi Goldberg's 9-11 and Z for Zachariah. And I was like, I want to be a development producer. And so in indie film, there's this thing where you like, bring bring us all the uh content you can find bring us all the financing contacts that you have we'll try to put this thing together and so um as is very traditional with indie film he was like listen this is not a salary position but if you bring me stuff and we can put it together we can do something and I was like man that sounds like a like a a flawed model in our system. Right. Like, but uh, yeah, for sure. will okay. Let, let me, let me think about it. I'll come back to you and start gathering stuff. And I went to a friend of mine who worked for Michael Bay and, um, he was a development producer for Michael Bay during, te- during the Ted's and it was a party of his. And I was like, Hey, I want to be development producer. And he looked at me and he said, Oh, hon, should have started ten years ago in a mailroom. You can't just become a development producer, and you know, given the journey I've just shared with you, it was just the wrong like,
0: damn <laughs> like it that's a response
1: wrong thing to say to a person like me because what I had learned through my knee injury, through my overcoming my auditory processing disorder, through reshaping my entire life was that n- no, in this case means yes, that's not true, that there is no way. It doesn't exist where there is no way. It just means that you have not thought of it. And, and what I learned it, throughout these journeys that I've been on was that if you can provide value to someone, then you become indispensable to them. And so if I could find out where the value was in this Space of development or or this film industry and what I could bring to the table that no one else could, I could do whatever I wanted, and so I remember waiting for a taxi outside his outside his party and thinking to myself, what do I know to be true about all these creative industries? And what I knew to be true was that no matter where I'd worked in advertising at Saatchi and strategy um, with the telecoms or with battery. Always what was true was that the money was in control of the creative. We had been in this space, in the advertising world, in the brand world, where um, gone were kind of like these days, uh, aspirational days, where the control was fully in the creative's hands. You basically, as a creative in all those industries I'd worked in, would pitch ideas to the brand who held the purse strings. And then they would turn around and be like, oh, that's a really nice idea. Here's what we're going to do. And I was like, I want to be that person. And my mother, my entire life had told me to go into finance. I have a full business degree. And I'd been like, no, I hate finance. I hate finance. (laughs) I hate finance. I was good at it. I learned it. We had done acquisition financing for brands when I was working in strategy. I understood it, but it was not my passion. But in that moment, standing outside, I was like, okay, this is it. If I ever want to be in control of the story, I'm going to need to go and learn the money. I'm going to need to understand the economics into which I'm creating into and how that business works. And I'd had a great mentor we all had during our business program who was the head of the company ILSCO. Uh They are a They are a uniform manufacturer, a global uniform manufacturer. They make like the uniforms that the FedEx workers wear, etc. But multi-billion dollar company. And he had come to us and he told us once, before anyone works as a major exec at my companies, I make sure that they spend at least a week in every position that my company has to offer, from driving the truck to working the um merchandising lines every single job because how can you lead a ship if you don't know the parts that make up the whole and that had really stuck with me and so here I am being told to become a development producer you got to start all over there's no way you can do it and realizing that the person who can usurp that is the person in charge of the purse purse strings Okay, so if I'm gonna go learn the financing, what else do I need to learn about the industry to be that leader who does get the final say in the stories? So, this began a long journey for me in the film industry. I went back to the film house in New York. I said, I would love to work with you guys, but I would love to train under your money. Um, I started working with the family office that they were working with at the time and starting to understand film finance, which was the last thing I wanted to learn, because it would get me to what I wanted. I wanted to be a creator. I wanted to be an artist. And my five-year-old self wanted one thing, to be able to create with freedom and tell stories that would affect and change the world. So we're going back to that five-year-old self. How do I create a world where this is possible? I have to understand the business because a creative who doesn't understand the business is just another creative. You'll never be able to create an original idea and work backwards from an original idea without someone else telling you what to do unless you can tell them why, hey, this money won't work this way. Well, this is how I can make it work. You need to be able to speak all the languages. And so I spent the next um, eight years of my life and I learned everything. The thing about film finance is that there's a different way that the studio does it, independent does it, different way the development does it. I spent time learning everything I could possibly learn about every part of our industry that anyone would let me get hands on. I was a PA on music video shoots, I would shadow directors. By the way, I wasn't getting paid for any of this. I was like, I, would, I had yellow pads where I wrote, every time someone got on a finance call, I'd write down every single thing that they said. I would look it all up because although I understood finance was finance trained, people use vernacular in film and television, that's different. Um, and I had the gift of coming in from other industries. So I understood, I think a lot of times people get into film and TV and the way that they learn is the only way that they feel is ever possible. I had the gift of coming into it later and understanding that uh, in brand, in other industries, that dependent on which model you grow up, if you worked at Procter & Gamble your whole life or Nestle your whole life or if you worked as an entrepreneur your whole life, everyone has these systems in their head that they have decided are the only way to do something. The truth of the matter is... The solution is between an integration of all those different ways. But people get so lost, and this is the way I was taught, this is the only way to do it, that in our industry, especially in film and TV, a lot of times that's where projects go and die, is because people are, are only able to execute what they've been taught and have not had the curiosity, we're getting to my company's name here, Curiosity Entertainment, the curiosity to ask the questions of why things are done in these other ways, right? The curiosity to say, oh, okay, this, you're telling me this is how it's done, but why? And there's ego in our industry too. People don't want to ask why because part of being a producer or filmmaker or whatever, oh no, 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 this is how it's done. This is how I, this is, this is, this is the way. This is a Hollywood mystique around it, right? And so being the person who's like, yes, but why? Yes, but what does that mean? Means in some ways showing weakness in our industry. And so people never ask the questions, which was mind blowing to me. Um, The last pivot, two pivots that like kind of happened here, the last big pivot that happens, uh, Sohab, that I'll share with you in my journey to fully realizing my dream was now I was learning all these things. I was in the business side of film and TV and I wasn't having a lot of success. I'd worked with Randy Jackson as his partner with his Endemol TV deal, the guy, uh, Randy from American Idol. I'd worked at Atlantic Screen Media Group on all these enormous um, Cross Creek deals like uh, Lone Survivor and Two Guns. But I wasn't having this like success and I wasn't getting to this creative spot that I wanted to be. Um, I should mention that like the first year of producing, and this is a, cra- a crazy aside. I walked into Wilhelmina, um, and oh, wow. I, was, I was going to meet the CEO. Now, as a kid, um, up up until when I broke my knee at fifteen, I had modeled uh, in India. I had like acted. I'd sang. I'd been doing this stuff, and like Wilhelmina was one of those, you know, names that you always like aspire to. Like maybe one day they'll represent me. I had a friend from back home who knew the CEO of Wilhelmina here and was like, Hey, go meet him. He can introduce you to people in the industry. Cause now my goal was to create content to be a producer. So I'd walked into Wilhelmina, um, the first year of me producing and had just gone to meet with him, friend of a friend, that type of thing. And when I was in that meeting, he was like, let me see your reel. Reel is your compilation of the work that you've done. And I had a reel because I had been hosting Fox. I had been hosting the cooking show. I still had stuff that I had acted in throughout uh, my time in college and before. remember when I was doing the TV shows and pretending to be my own manager, getting on Entourage, etc. So I had a reel, but it was very outdated. And I told him, I was like, oh, my my reel's outdated, but I don't do this anymore. But here you go. You can take a look. And he um took a look and he was like oh interesting and I left the meeting and thought that we were going to be friends he's going to introduce me to people and I got a call the next day from one of his agents and he says oh we're signing you and I was like you're signing me he was like yeah we opened a talent division we're signing you as talent so here I was finally deciding that like I was going to be the storyteller this producer whatever and now this 15 year old dream that I had but at 15, all of a sudden came back and landed in my lap. And uh, for a couple months, I went on auditions. I went to, but what, what was happening in this period of my life was I needed to take a second and understand what it was about this dream that I loved so much. Behind the camera, in front of the camera, why did I love storytelling? And this is where I got this definition and understood. I spent a lot of time just going back in my brain, Sohab, and understanding like, Why was I so obsessed with this when I was a kid? Was it the attention, was it like singing, was it acting, was it dancing? And this is where I came to the conclusion that it was about the communication tool and the ability to inspire others. And so what mattered to me at that point, when I sat down was that I would be able to long-term be 80 years old and still be able to create something and put it into the world. And so I actually quit Wilhelmina a month after signing with them because what was happening was I was going out and telling people I'm a producer and I'm signed to Wilhelmina. And I felt, and I want to be very clear about this, I felt and where I was in my growth back then, that, that their reaction to me was to not take me as seriously because now I was both, right? I was, I was like a struggling actress or whatever, Right. Not really. I just started, but I was struggling and I was trying to be this super business, powerful money person. Right. And so I had a come to Jesus moment where I sat down myself and had a conversation and was like, what is it that you love about this industry? And I decided it was that I wanted to be able to be a long term player and a storyteller. And so I made a decision to quit Wilhelmina and go into producing. Now, why I say this was a decision and this is what I believed at the time is because I now know that when you feel that resistance from someone, that is actually your own internal resistance. They are a reflection of what you're putting out into the world. So if I had gone into that meeting and been like, oh, no, of course, this is what I do. Perhaps they're. Their reaction to me would have been different, but I was not there in my growth cycle. So I made a decision to go into the business side because I wanted the longevity. And five years later, I would get in a really bad car wreck. It would almost um, kill me. I was driving down the 101. A guy fell asleep at the wheel, crashed into the back of my uh, Mini Cooper, flipped me down the highway. Jaws of life, the whole thing, they had to come and pry me out from an upside down car with flames coming out of it, um, tear between my second and third vertebrae, and it financially wiped me out. And I had still not hit that massive success that I'd wanted. Um... And I had to now go to doctors every day. I had to quit my job that was over in Westlake, and I had to take a job just doing office work close to me, so that I could, um, so that I could go to my treatments and have the flexibility to go to my treatments. And this is the last big pivot for now, because <laughs> you're always learning of losing <laughs> my fear that led to my current success. Because what I realized when I was put against all odds and lost everything financially because of all the medical bills I was paying, had to fight my own insurance to get, even though I had um, uninsured driver's motor insurance, they didn't want to just give it to me. I'd take my own insurance to court to get the insurance, all these things. And I was really financially hurting. And what um, happened was I got to a point where I was like, maybe this was a foolish dream. I've been working in it for X amount of years. I haven't had that big takeoff moment. I haven't had massive financial success. And you know, when you're when you get physically hurt, you start reevaluating everything. You're like, oh man, maybe I was wrong. I didn't set myself up to have security in case something happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so. I started doing a reevaluation of my life. You know, you write down everything and you pull out your vision board and you're just like, okay, what was I trying to go at? Where did I go wrong? And what I realized was that throughout this entire journey, though I had lost so much fear in terms of what I was capable of, of, though I had lost fear around my ability to start over and build uh, with my auditory processing disorder, though I had... Uh, figured out a path forward to getting into an industry because of the lessons that those things had taught me, I had not lost my fear around being financially successful doing something I loved. There was still this old voice, like from my parents, from our ancestors, etc. of like, Oh, like an artist is like a risk. An artist is like, you know, if you, if it's just the art, you better have something fall back on. You better, whatever that is. I had not lost that fear. And so when I looked back at my career, even when I was working at after partners, every time I, was, I, as soon as I got into producing, every time I'd done anything that was creative, I'd always had a backup. I was doing creative and strategy. I was producing, but I was also advising over some brands. I was producing, but I was also helping with some real estate deals. I was, I always had a backup plan that was integrated in my life. I had never given my art my 100%. There had always been a backup plan. And so I had three months till Christmas and I said, you know what? I'm going. To, to give myself 100% focus on just what I want. And worst comes to worst, I'll move home to Ohio. And what the nepotist was for this decision was I had gone to look at a house to live in and I had misread an ad and I had gone to the hills and I met these kids, college kids, just graduated from um, San Bernardino and they were... Um, or sorry, they just, anyway, they just graduated from a California college and they were making 10 grand a week. They were living in a massive mansion and they wanted me to rent one of the rooms for them for $6,000 a month. And I remember just standing here listening to these kids and I was looking at them and was just like, there's no way this kid is smarter than me. Berkeley. He just graduated from Berkeley. I was like, how the hell is he making 10 grand a month? And they were doing dropship stores. They had been doing them since they were in college, Amazon dropship stores. And so after I found this information from this kid, the brain is this beautiful tool. If someone makes you understand, this is why manifestation works. If someone makes you understand something might be possible for you, your brain all of a sudden shifts into the space of possibility. And so this kid made me understand, like, these kids are making 10 grand a month. So I went home and I spent uh, like 48 hours and I watched every video on dropshipping Amazon that I could find. And at the end of those 48 hours, I knew with 100% certainty that if worse came to worse, I could move back to Ohio with $1,000 in my pocket and I could make a million by the end of the year. And then I could go make whatever film I wanted.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> and so with that confidence, I now went back to my filmmaking. I was like, okay, for the next three months, I'm going to do nothing but filmmaking. I'm going to not take any brand extra, whatever, come help me with this, nothing. And I'm going to move home to Ohio. And I'm going to I'm going to start my dropship business and then I'm going to come back out. This is the plan. And the moment I did that within a month, I'd had my big first big success. My first big film, literally a month from doing that. Um, And so the rest is kind of history. And this is how I became a producer. And so it started. I then moved fully back over into the creative side um, I sold my first two treatments over the pandemic as a creative to other companies just to kind of prove to myself I could. Um, and I started building our company, and now I'm developing and creatively producing everything that we do. Um, I'm also writing music that goes into some of our our film and TV shows that I will be starting a music division to the company. Um and yeah, I, I finally got into this place where I'm living as an artist. I was able to close money because of the information that I learned during my time as a finance, uh, in the financing side after I left my last company prior to the pandemic. Um, and that allowed me to start building out the creative side of the company and move fully back in the creative. Now, let me be clear with you. I understand all the parts. Um, but you know, let's stop there. This is my journey till now. And then you ask questions and I'll answer them.
0: Yeah, well, well what a story. I think, um, especially me having COVID, this <laughs> has been the easiest, because uh, you're such a good speaker, the e- easiest interview for me, especially having, you know, troubles with my voice right now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Drusha, wow. I mean, the ups and downs and, um, and the resilience and the bouncing back up. Uh, I just felt exhausted thinking about the energy you must have needed to overcome each challenge as it hit you. And every time your success came, then it would be met with some type of either ailment or something would happen. And then you had that fear, but then you'd overcome it and expectation, a lot going on. And I can definitely relate um, with the expectation part of, of, you know, having that safety, having the expectation to reach certain financial milestones by certain ages, especially kind of, you know, our South Asian backgrounds as well. But then you making it a career, I mean, I don't see many South Asians in, in these fields. Um, and I know you used to host a lot about that and try and engage. So I do want to, before I go into your story, I do want to ask you, what is your opinion, kind of what's topical right now? Bridgerton has got a lot of, this um, um, I guess, a PR for South Asian representation. Do you think that's a one-off or do you see more South Asian Um, representation coming and then how how did you kind of feel yourself breaking that mold
1: yeah um so two different questions so let me in in terms of of breaking the mold i'm going to start backwards and work into bridgerton i think that um that there are there's not that many first generation South Asians in Hollywood, especially that don't have some sort of Hollywood connection that uh, own companies, operate companies, are creative voices. Uh, So that has become a really important thing to me to just kind of help show our community that believing in yourself as a creative um, is a possibility for all of us. Um, And I think you know, uh, the hope is that the journey doesn't exhaust people, but show people that, like, it's all in our own heads. Like, imagine if something had happened earlier. These are all things that we culturally and we societally bring as baggage into our current existence, right? Again, my five-year-old self knew exactly what she wanted to do. What if I had just been able to listen to her? So the lessons that I needed to learn were lessons de-societizing what my uh and this is not my par- again my parents are wonderful but like what cultures taught my parents to teach me what society taught uh what teachers taught me what it was unlearning restrictions that were put on to me by other people um that i created- your five-year-old self
0: was pretty 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 bold i'd say as well and because and we see full of south asian ceos etc and and but even if you're looking creatively like Bollywood Shah Rukh Khan like there's there's no one as big as him right so you're right there's no barrier it's just i don't know why it doesn't happen in hollywood
1: i think cuz we're told these things and so i would encourage people you know to take away from my journey just this idea that you have the power to overcome and do anything it's actually what was i learning in each of those instances i was learning that it was already in me that if i had just believed in myself enough And it hadn't taken a massive knee injury or, or finding out I had a learning disability or a car accident to push me to the brink of belief. Nothing changed. Those were all part of me. Right. Like it was just me learning that I had that ability. And that comes with belief. And that comes back to the responsibility not only as a South Asian storyteller, but as a storyteller in general to create stories where people can see themselves in the characters and believe in more than what their limitations are. This is what great storytelling is. It's you being able to anything as trivial as you being able to watch a sex in the city episode and realize you can get over heartbreak and not spend the next week depressed in a room to you being able to watch a story about a kid from the, from the wrong side of the tracks who becomes the best orthopedic surgeon in the world and believe that that could be you, you know, like it's these idea. And even in the fantasy realm, this idea that like magic and love is, uh, is possible and that you deserve it. When you see it in characters, when you hear it in music, then you get that, that within you, that seed of understanding. And it is these seeds of understanding that allow people to escape the prisons of their own constructs. And those constructs are created by society, they're created by well-meaning parents, they're created by the world, but you don't have to live with them. You could do anything. And with Bridgerton and what we see now with South Asians coming together in our industry, I think we're at the very beginning of it. We have to remember that for South Asians specifically, colonialism wasn't that long ago. We still have grandparents who lived under British rule. So for us, the diasporic healing is just beginning. Those wounds are still present in our conversations. The otherism and the whitewashing is still present in our conversations. And so we are be in my opinion, behind a lot of the other minority groups in terms of getting to this space of really what it is to band together and rise above our, our our oppressions, because it's still very recent to us, and so I'm so proud of all the people in our communities for starting those first move those starting those first steps towards putting more of our content out, um and and making sure that um. The opportunities are there with things like the salon, et cetera, for new creatives to understand and navigate the industry. We've taken the first steps. But part of the first steps are going to be also understanding our own identities. Like India was a bunch of kingdom and Pakistan too, a bunch of kingdoms and villages when the British first came in. And they came in and they said, now... Uh, and I love, you know, but this is this is part of our history. Like they came in and they said, now you will be Indians because you all look the same. But the truth of the matter is within the Indian diaspora within uh, and, and the Pakistanis who are our neighbors, there are so many different subcultures. And we were all really separate countries and separate nations that someone came in and said, now you will all be one. So we don't have the same religious beliefs. We don't have the same cultural beliefs. We are all of different backgrounds. And so there needs to be an examination of that identity in itself, because to say this is South Asian content, now every South Asian is going to relate to it. There is a disconnect there because, because again, it is my personal belief that we are a bunch of countries that were told we are now one country and we have not done the dissection of what that is. Right. Um, and Bollywood does a great job of that representation with their Telugu films and their, and their films for the different diaspora. But first gen American global Indians haven't done that dissection. We see another South Asian, you're a South Asian, I'm a South Asian, but the truth of the matter is We are actually different South Asians and that has not been explored, delved into or unpacked. And then lastly, the other, um, the other challenge that we're up against is that I believe wholeheartedly that first generation British, first generation U.S. is its own demographic. We have our own buyer behavior. We have our own belief systems. We have our own um, types of content. We're drawn through our own storylines. This existence of being between two cultures, whether you're Mexican, Indian, American, Greek, and being of American or British nationality or any other nationality, being, being a first-gen wherever you're growing up, is its own identity. And we have yet to allow first-gen individuals to own that identity as its own subsect and culture. And so Chin, I believe is this beautiful, thank God for Shonda Rhimes. She is, she, I, I love Shonda Rhimes. She owns, Shonda Rhimes is responsible for 70% of the content on the air on air globally on your television. Sorry, Soha, what were you saying?
0: No way. I didn't know that. That's, that's insane. statistic. Like...
1: she is a powerhouse. And so Thank you to her for for and the writers of and the creators who created because this was created by several individuals that brought it to her and then she championed it. Like thank thank you to those people for seeing um, this South Asians as as another diaspora that could own this conversation and this character of being part of British society because we were, by the way, there were three princesses. They were called the Sing princesses and they were, um, they lived in England and they were part of British royalty. It's just like a forgotten part of history. And so <laughs> I think what Bridgerton has done has taken one more step for the entire industry away from typecasting um, and color casting roles, which is very, very necessary. Um, I think we have a lot of work as a subculture to do to unpack our own, um, uh, to to move towards our own diasporic healing and understanding of who we are as a diaspora. And I think from where I sit, what that means is I am seeing a lot more content, yes, that is South Asian focused. We have two projects that have South Asians as the main characters, and I have South Asians in... Um, in uh, in most of our commercial projects that are um, present day, that are not historical. Um, But my responsibility from where I sit is to create storylines that relate to all these different diaspora, right? So it might not be my experience, but is it someone's experience and can they relate to it? So we're doing a movie with Anthony McCartan next year, then Nisha Ganatra is directing um that is about a muslim comedian a muslim female in england who decides that she wants to be a comedian and she decides after going to her friend's comedy class and stumbling into it and falling in love with it now she's got to tell her community and her parents that she wants to be a comedian sounds similar to my story i did not have conservative parents so i was lucky but i can relate to that i'm not muslim um and i uh although I have a lot of respect for the muslim religion i it's not my personal religion, but this idea of of being someone who straddles two worlds and falling in love with something like these are things I relate to right and so I felt like it was an important story to tell and of course we have I'm a Muslim director and we have um other other like that. but to tell this story and allow hope for people who may be stuck in the same position to understand that like hey, maybe this is something I can do. So I look for these kinds of things in stories. And with the South Asians, you know, I'm looking for things that uniquely, the South Asian stories that uniquely show us in a different light. But I'm also very aware that by by being a South Asian myself behind the camera, um, in music, in front of the camera, whatever that is, that I am uniquely adding that perspective and that my perspective is part of this story. And I think as storytellers in this changing environment, that's the best thing we can do. Have empathy for other people's experiences experiences and our own and understanding them and create these collective uh, experiences for audiences to really travel out of wherever, um, whatever they have been given as their box and understand other people's boxes.
0: That sounds amazing, Richard. It's such a comprehensive and insightful answer. And I completely agree. The colonial past is pretty recent, especially with the British in kind of our region. And and yeah, it, it, India today is like, for context, India has 1.2 billion people. And it's such a vast landmass with so many different languages and cultures. And you can't just capture that with one individual, right? Because it's so different. South India, North India, East, West... Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka—like it is. You're right. So di- so diverse, right? Um, and even even if we look at it, Bollywood and even Pakistan, Punjabi culture dominates, right? makes I think, one percent of India, but Bollywood is so Punjabi influenced. And um, it's interesting, kind of, how we get representation of of different cultures, especially kind of in Western media as well as the diaspora as well. So it's, I think, super interesting what you're doing, especially with this new storyline. Um, taking a Muslim individual, for example, as well. Um, and yeah, I can definitely see how creativity helps um, us carry messages, which brings kind of the world closer together. And I do want to talk about creativity because, um, as you know, I'm probably aligned to tech, I'm into AI, and they say with artificial intelligence coming, um, jobs which we, we probably, our parents would consider, you know, traditional are almost more replaceable now and then creativity is the thing that ai will struggle with most so they say the people with the creative abilities are the ones that are more valuable to humanity so what are your thoughts on that a and b how do you stay creative are there ways you get these ideas um things that you do or practice to keep you to help you stay creative what are some some of your thoughts there
1: um so I can go through processes for creative, but what was the f- the first part of the question? Can you yeah about
0: um, creativity? Like, an AI comes, I think creative individuals will be the most valuable. So I think we breed more creativity yeah. and more people.
1: Yeah. So I I think that um that that you know what I like to call IP intellectual property, which means different things over different industries, but the film and TV industry means original ideas have always kind of been King, whether you're in tech, whether you're in film and TV, whether you're in medicine. Um, And so like, that is just a part of the world that has gone back to the caveman days and is not going anywhere and within that what we've seen is uh over the years the homogenization of the human population away from original thoughts original uh, uh original thinking processes because of commercialization of all these industries so put people into systems teach them the system this is how this this is how Nestle works, this is how, this is how GE works, whatever this is, right? And now you as a human are thinking within that system. And then we saw an explosion with the entre- with the creator mo- the creator uh, economy, where all these people became um creators slash entrepreneurs. Creator economy really is not just about Instagram, whatever that is. It's about people becoming entrepreneurs, right? And having their own six-figure businesses and less. And we saw this resurgence of innovation. And the reason for that was because the corporations at a point where, where they had to start outsourcing their creativity because it all died internally. They used to be these creative juggernauts, but as they systematically created systems for people, people lost the creativity and now they had to outsource their creativity so they were looking for small mom and pop shops to bring that in from and this is where you saw this need economically speaking happen in the in the marketplace right for these entrepreneurs and smaller businesses it was cuz the larger corporations were now buying the smaller businesses to add creativity back into their ecosystem and so i explained this entire kind of last 10 years and what we've seen in the cycle um, in all across all industries in terms of this turnover um, in or sorry, this not turnover is not the right word I'm looking for. But for this, this uh, relationship between creative, between people coming into the system, systemizing them, losing the creativity, export or, or trying to bring creativity in from importing creativity from outside. Now there's demand for that outside. Now you've got the rise of the creator economy. And now you once again have companies that are trying to bring those all underneath different um, different, sh- different umbrellas, whether they be AI companies, whether they be you know massive SPACs, whatever it is. And then you're going to see it happen once again where humans just spurn out. Um, and so I think that like I use that example and and show you guys what's been happening because this is something circuitous that's happened uh, traditionally throughout history in all industries throughout time. This is how society (laughs) continuously moves forward. And the key to understanding that that is something we replicate again and again as humans is that um, you need to understand that that systematic thinking that is being fed into you is what you need to escape. To love, understand, and live in the creative process. People give you lines every single day. I hope that was clear, Sohab. Tell me if anything I didn't, didn't say. No,
0: very clear, very clear. Okay. We so people,
1: people like People give you lines every day. And they say, draw in the lines. And it is, if you aspire to be someone at the forefront of creative thinking, it is your job to look outside those lines and ask why. It is your job to lead with curiosity. No matter what that line is, no matter what people say, this is the way you do it. This is the way you get to the front of the line. This is the way you fill this out. This is the way like the system works. This is the only way the system works. This is how you be the person who asks why. Be that person who wants to understand what's outside those lines. That's how you take your first step towards being a true creative a creative is always leading with curiosity a creative is again why i named my company curiosity entertainment a creative is always asking the why whether it's a, within a story structure whether it's within a business structure whether it's in the way they put together a song they are constantly fiddling and saying yeah but what would happen if i do this But what would happen if i do this but what would happen if i do this and it's a maddening process but it is a process that brings the best ideas to the top. And within that, if you were someone who's been working in, in between lines for a long time, or have been in systems that made you think in between lines, there's an uncomfortability ability. Uh, bleh, bleh. There's a feeling of, of discomfort, right? Because um, you are in what you perceive as a human, a danger zone looking outside these lines, right? And so, Not having a final ending place where a song will be finished or a story will be finished or a business plan will be finished is very uncomfortable to people who have always thought in lines, but it is very necessary to truly be a creative genius is to never have a finishing point, to never have an ending line, to never have a line around it, to always be asking why, to not be afraid of where that why may lead you. Because at the end of the day, like all it can do is make you better, right? All it can do is refine your process. All it can do is it's be extra information and data for you to have, right? And AI and all these systems that you that you speak to that we're building by proxy, if it being, you know, code and computer, it is restrict It has those lines. And so it's going to make those decisions. It's not going to, it's not going to operate on randomness. And that's what creatives have is that beautiful ability to add that random nature into a process. Um, So for what was the second question for me as a creative, what my process is, is really that not being afraid to, to break something open and start all over again, to tear it apart, to, 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 um, to to ask the questions when everyone else around me just wants to get to the finish line. Um, and so whether it's a story that we're looking at, whether it's uh, a business plan that we're looking at, whether it's a financial model for that business plan, I look at it as all creative, to be honest, because I think that that's the type of mindset you have to have as a leader in today's day and age, to your point, to really survive.
0: Love that answer. And there's a fine line with NFTs and Web3 as well at the same time. So tell me kind of what you're aiming to do with that and kind of, is that something you're excited about? Do you think NFTs are sustainable? Is it all hype? What is your take on on that space?
1: So as a so we are now two companies. We're a creative production company, Curiosity Entertainment. We have a finance arm, Curiosity Media Finance. We do finance with other people as well and work with the studios and streamers. Um, our creative company develops and produces, and so we have five TV shows now that are all um with amazing showrunners, uh, the showrunner of Entourage and Ballers, the writers of Umbrella Academy, the writers of Fear of Walking Dead, um, the creator of Ozarks, etc. We have three, or sorry, yeah, three films. One is uh, I can't tell you about yet, but the uh, other one will go in October, and it's this great female-led action comedy with Simon West directing it, called Bridehard. Um, that shoots in Malta, and then we have the the one I told you about that comes in May. So we have this great opportunity from where I sit to really approach Web3 and help traditional film and television creators understand what that movement's going to be for the future of our industry in terms of one-to-one Um, how it's going to change our processes, how smart contracts will affect us, and how NFTs can help creators think outside the box. So the NFT movement, the Web3 movement, what excites me about it is actually a lot of what people aren't talking about yet. And that is how it will actually transform portions of our industry and to, to what you just asked about, Sohab, the way that creatives basically operate in the economy in general. So what we've seen of, of web three and NFT so far is, you know, the, um, the JPEGs and people building communities around essentially what is like a trading card. Right. And um, you know, does these animated or these pixelized beautiful art that people are now creating community around they're, they're creating clubs and, secret societies and all the nerdy things that comic book creators used to do. Um, and I'm a nerd, so that's not a negative statement. Uh, and all the things that we saw collectors do back in the day, but I think that NFTs, what they allow you to do futuristically is just really own your IP in a way where there can never be a question about your ownership in it. And so for our company, we'll be building out a Web3 side to our company and we'll be doing it based on allowing our fandom to be part of our story-making process and to be able to grow with us as we grow as a company. And then we'll be utilizing smart contracts to make sure that creators that create with us have protection on their ideas from the day of inception with us through whatever lifeline if their kids kids decide to remake a movie with whoever years from now they will get uh residuals and that and that's all on the blockchain um and and i can't share you with you the exact plan because i'd be giving away all my ideas but i can tell you that i'm focused specifically on how it allows our fans to participate in our premium TV and um, films that are being sold and distributed the traditional way and how that can be a roadmap for other film and television companies, independent producers specifically, to understand how to protect themselves as our industries continue to change. And we see more and more tech uh, players come into film and television because what's becoming very apparent for the creative side of our industry is that the only competitive advantage that independent producers will have in the future as more and more tech companies get into film and TV and get into creative and you've got AI that's creating um using consumer behavior and creating storylines off that, et cetera is <clears throat> a original creative which you brought up, and b the ability to understand who your audience is, find them, and retarget them one to one relationship with your audience, right? so um I'll give you a web two example of this uh stars. I believe it was the Harvard Business Review. There was an article about how the Star CEO, he created his own app for Starz when he took over. He came from a tech company. Um, Starz had become kind of a defunct premium channel. There wasn't a lot of great programming on it. And when he stepped in, he created his own app and everyone was like, oh, is this is stupid. Why are you creating your own app? Everyone has an app. Like we're not going to be able to compete against Netflix and whoever for subscribers. But he wasn't doing it for subscriptions. It's an app that just... Lives on Hulu, lives on um, Voodoo, lives on all the different distribution platforms. And it doesn't, if you have a Star subscription, it doesn't cost anything extra to join into it. They're part of bundles, et cetera. But he created the app because what he wanted was that first party data. So when people use the Star's app to watch things, he was now able to understand who his consumers were. And when he did a scrape of the data, he found out that his primary consumer were women of color from the Midwest of America. He had before that, like the white princess, all these like international different shit. He pivoted the entire strategy of the company to meet that target demographic. And all of a sudden they became one of the top three premium channels again. They know who their audience is. They know where to find them and they know how to deliver them content. This is the success of the future independent producer. And what Web3 allows you to do is it allows you to gather that data um, without having to go through a whole bunch of other people by creating a direct one-to-one relationship with your consumer from day one, knowing who those super fans are, how to get back to them, how to share new content with them, being able to 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 get data directly from them, that is power. And that is the beautiful thing that Web3 will do for the creator economy, for the current economy, for the artists, no matter what space, not even just in film and TV, and this is the realization that everyone needs to kind of come to as soon as this first wave di- dies down. And these are the applications you're going to see come out of it, right? Um, so I'm I'm interested in the future of what, what these applications mean. Um, the current trends are fun, and I'm into them. I got some great friends, some great projects. But I'm tracking what these current projects uh, teach us about the applications of this technology?
0: It was like quite the roadmap but mm. I definitely see the use case how you described it. And I, was, I was not that aware of what NFTs were when they first came out. And earlier this year, I held a series of interviews. One with um, one of my friends, her brother, um, the Sajwanis in, in Dubai. They're kind of uh, tech, they were not tech, but they're property billionaires. And he thought it was a scam, and then he came on my show, and he was saying how he's changed his mind. He's actually doing a project where he's doing luxury watches and things like that, uh, and doing an NFT project uh, as an NFT project, and how they're going to go for virtual real estate in the metaverse. And I realized kind of how a lot of people now are seeing how decentralization and rewarding creators in that one to one relationship, like you're saying, and identifying superfans is a big big advantage, as well as authenticating things that we can't do today in web two so drusha i'd love to see how that's consistent with what you're thinking about as well we do have derek with a question before we round up this podcast um
2: derek if you're there go for the question oh thanks uh great interview uh this is fantastic you guys you're, you're both very likable thanks <laughs> um, so sweet yeah no problem um this kind of reminds me of uh uh, interviews that I've seen on Hollywood Masters. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Um, no, but let's
1: get familiar. You want to introduce us?
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, i shit. I thought you'd, you'd be experts on this. You know, you're um,
1: your I, I TV love movie to be, people. Derek, I would love to be an expert on all things, but i got to tell you a secret about film and television production. I work till, like, two, at. I don't have any time. <laughs> so yeah, I'm yeah. actually painfully unaware of mo- of a lot of things just because creative takes so much energy to birth that the last thing i want to do when i'm done is read more about the creative
2: <laughs> right right but i nevertheless if you do have some free time i i highly recommend uh those interviews um it's uh i don't know it's some it's been a while since i've watched any of them but yeah it's either on netflix or prime i forget where i found it um but it, it's a, uh, some sort of like school for, you know, industry, Hollywood types out in California somewhere. I forget the name of it. Okay. Um, so it's a series of interviews with a wide variety of people from that industry, uh, you know, very, very famous people, um, directors, writers, actors, producers, um, execs. Um, yeah, so I think you, find it fascinating a lot of their stories are very similar to yours um also i'd recommend uh off camera with sam jones
1: yeah i've I love
2: quite a few of those
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah uh, specifically the brit marling interview that they did um reminds me of this interview um you know like at some point she was trying to get into the industry and she was standing in long lines you know waiting to get some bit part where she gets to scream or say something stupid. And she kind of realized she didn't really even want the part and it was time to start writing, you know,
1: and then, you know, love the show that she did. Thank you for that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Um, I was, uh, I was going to say it kind of, it's kind of making me sad. I know, I know how many people would love to break into that industry. I'm not an aspiring, um, you know, uh, artist or industry type, um, myself, but you know, like most people it's intriguing to me. Um, but all kinds of people trying to get into the industry would love this interview, you know, and it's just, last time I checked, it was just me and John, (laughs) you know? So it reminds me of, uh, when I, I went to visit a friend who is in the industry, she started her own, her own business, like behind the scenes stuff. And, uh, creative stuff and she's doing all right you know but like i spent a week out there hanging out in santa monica enjoying the weather and we'd go out and she'd have all these people that were in the in the industry (laughs) you know like we'd hang out for lunch drinks whatever very casual kind of stuff and all i could think was yeah this is just wasted on me all these like Actors that are just dying to get a part or something would love to be talking to this executive producer from Fox. And I'm just <laughs> talking about dive bars and how Santa Monica is a little too classy for me, you know, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah. So it seems like that would be incredible to get uh, more exposure. Maybe do a, a show like this on your own. Have, uh, I mean, do, do it however, you know. But it seems like, like that would really maybe be helpful to a lot of people just in terms of wrapping their head around why they want to do things, why they're really pursuing these goals, you know?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, and- listen Sohab is a good friend and this is my first time on this app. Otherwise, maybe I would have done a better job of promoting it. I didn't understand that it was kind of like Clubhousey Sohab, but I think... This is we
0: recorded, no, no. Yeah, Drusha, no, Uh, Derek, this will be recorded. So the the reason I don't do... So Clubhouse is where we get the audience, right? But I want content that also stays, Mm -hmm. it's not replay. So the advantage of Colin is that it'll be straight on Spotify and Apple Podcasts after this. And I can distribute it amongst my human behavior community over on Clubhouse, as well as social media. And Drusha can also promote it. And what that means is that because it's on two stable platforms, Apple and Spotify, that most people are on, it means a lot of people can listen to it. But for the recording, I just aim for, I mean, if someone comes in, they can come in, but I just aim for me and the the guests, because I find calling this for me to just record and publish. It's it's very efficient. Like after this, for me to even edit it and noise, make everything so even is so easy on this app. (laughs) And otherwise, podcast production takes hours. I remember doing a start of us part of, so so that's why. But yeah, we will get distribution for this. Sure.
2: Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense. If you have to edit later then, in light of that, sorry about the swearing, I guess. Probably want to go <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry. don't worry
0: about it. Thanks, Derek. Appreciate it. <laughs> um,
2: well, hold on. If you if you don't mind, I wanted to recommend one thing. Since uh, you're in the, in, the, uh, in the creative industry, um, there's a, a little known... I wanted to make a recommendation. I don't know if that's annoying for an entertainment person, but uh, uh I wonder if you guys, especially, you know, since you're from another part of the world, if, if you've heard of Boutros Boutros Ghali, the former uh, UN secretary general at all.
1: Wait, you're asking me or are you asking Sohab?
2: Oh, uh, well, mainly you. Sorry.
1: Sorry. Ask the question again. My bad.
2: OK. Uh, are you familiar with former secretary general of the United Nations Boutros Boutros Ghali?
1: Uh, I do not know him personally, but I am aware of who he is.
2: Okay, yeah. Uh, he wrote an agenda for peace, a, a series of recommendations. Yeah. Okay, I think that would make for an incredible story. It's not just that I find those recommendations and him to be brilliant, and and you know the hit, you know his influence could have been amazing. I believe, but aside from that, the, the political. Uh, issues that were involved because his, uh, his, uh, second, ter- second term as secretary general was derailed because it, the year, uh, the election year for that coincided with the U.S. presidential election year
1: mm-hmm. and
2: U.S. politics interfered with, um, you know, the consensus opinion, uh, worldwide about Boutros, Boutros He, he would have been, um, voted in for a second term by the entire world. you know every, every single member of the United Nations voted for him to do a second term, but the, the only country that didn't was the United States. So I think it could be a really compelling story, not just about him and the prospects for meaningful, lasting peace that he put forward, but also the political issues that coincided with that could be you know really really inspiring for a lot of people to think things through about where we want to go you know worldwide kind of basis so anyway i'll cut it short sorry
1: no i wrote it down thank you so much for the recommendation
2: yeah no problem
0: yeah thanks derek appreciate you coming up here so adrusha thank you so much for kind of being on the podcast today and sharing so much i think we covered a lot of different topics which i'm super passionate about the human behavior club we talked about things like creativity the mind we talked a bit about Um, you know, you suffering from auditory processing disorder, me being a doctor, I was super interested in that as well. Mental health, the resilience you showed. Mental health has been something which came to the forefront during the pandemic, and I tried to do a lot of content and shows uh, around that and kind of centered the Human Behavior Club around that. And then just an an, an incredible founding story as well, how the creative that you're where you're at now, how you found the ups, the downs, the lessons um, the tips for everyone else. I think this has been a, been a bit of a masterclass. Uh, I'm glad I don't have too much. I could just listen to you very brilliantly explain whilst I <laughs> suffer from COVID. But, and, and also, I didn't know you were from Ohio. I've actually been to Ohio. So I didn't know it was kind of the hub of, of brands and things like that. So super I insightful. Love you. <laughs>
1: I love to say Midwest values global appeal because I grew up all around the world. So I had a really yeah. national outlook, but like what I loved about the Midwest was there's just this family values piece that um, we already had as a family and culturally, <laughs> but it was beautiful to have that around um, growing up and, you know, just having that kind of like that understanding of, um, of how that war- part of the world thinks. And I-, I thank you so much for having me. I think that, like, you know, if there are any of these topics, they were very deep topics. I know that I've had my own, in terms of human behavior, insane experiences. Happy to delve into any one of them if there's something that the audience wants more of, because I know, um, yeah, sometimes when I go through the auditory processing disorder, the, a lot of people will come back, or if... Um, If there's something around one of those mental feats like that's interesting to you, I'm happy to speak more on it. But like I think the takeaway like is just that we as human beings are these amazing organisms capable of anything. And I as a movie and film and television producer and an artist have finally found my home in this space of creation and being able to take the lessons that I've learned and literally create anything. But that is not a gift that is reserved for me. That is a gift that is um, given to all human beings. You are creators. That is who we are as an organism. We create. And so I hope some people who listen to this have a mind shift into understanding it doesn't matter if you're an accountant or if you're an engineer or if you're a delivery guy, you by nature of being a human being are a creator. And so allow yourself to own that and wherever that takes you in your dreams, there's no dream that is too big or too small. Uh, to have they all have equal weight. If your dream is to be a kindergarten teacher, that is an amazing dream. If your dream is to be a movie producer, that is an amazing dream. But remember that like as a human being, you're a creator. And so that part of our human behavior is intrinsic to us. And I hope some people walk away from this just with taking some of their power back to own. That definition of what we are as human organisms.
0: How eloquently said, Arusha. And actually, with some of these topics, I'd love, I mean, I think you're a leader of my club over on Human Behavior Club, so you can host any time. Would love kind of. Maybe a few, I've thought of a few things you, you could do there as well. But I know you're super, super busy. But this has been an incredible episode. Um, the longest one we've had yet, actually, uh, which oh no. kind of talks volumes about how much you have to say, which is great, actually. Um, um And there has been so much insight and learning points as well. And I think for me, someone who actually recently started working with creatives, probably since February, it's been about six months, um, mm-hmm. as I transitioned um, more into digital health type of roles as a medical advisor for a company called Havas, which is a creative agency. And we work with like pharma and healthcare companies. And and, and my job as a medical advisor, I have to liaise with creatives. So I've learned a lot about how difficult that side of things is. And, and have some incredible ideas come out. And um, I'm definitely enjoying creative side way more actually it's a lot of fun it's stressful but it's fun as well and working with, with these type of individuals and you're right i think we all have that creativity and with i think everyone's trying to be a creative if you look online a lot of people are jumping on platforms such as tiktok and me my friend from my friend went to cambridge do medicine and now he's a full-time youtuber right so it shows where kind of where where, where people's desires are going as well as of late so drusha thank you so much for sharing your personal journey and being here and um also sharing about ohio as well i guess i have to find someone in ohio warm-hearted family-oriented people as you did. um
1: (laughs) you have well my parents are still there you can always have them so (laughs) always
0: have them they'll
1: volunteer for you they would love you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> let's let's yeah listen i'm happy to join you whenever you want me and thank you guys so much for listening and i hope that uh people leave a little more inspired and a little more curious
0: yeah thanks everyone for coming and and this will be available on spotify and apple Podcasts. and we'll be sharing the content as well and drusha finally where can people follow you
1: uh my screen name on all apps applications all Social media handles is at adrusha at A D H R U C I A. That makes my life very easy. easy. Your <laughs> life very easy. Got to spell it right. You can find our company at Curiosity Entertainment on Instagram and at Watch Curiosity on Twitter. Um, we are getting ready to start these announcements, and so would love. You guys, to follow along there, I think you'll enjoy, if you're trying to get into your creative groove, the content that we put out there. It's all about just helping people, uh, inspiring people to think outside the box, inspiring people to think with a limitless mindset, and inspiring artists to create more through, through affecting them with knowledge. So definitely check out Watch Curiosity on Twitter or at Curiosity Entertainment on Instagram. And uh, our website is www.curiosity-entertainment.com.
0: Brilliant. Adrusha, best of luck for what's to come. Excited to see what's coming in the next few months with your uh, productions as well, especially in TV as well. And thank you so much for being here. And guys, we'll, I'll catch you in the next Human Behavior Show. That was it for me. We had brilliant guest Adrusha. And this
2: will be available on Apple and Spotify. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
1: Thank you.